Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2019 Spring Retreat. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Michael McConnell, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is Blank versus Trump, the spate of cases challenging presidential policies. It was recorded on April 15th, 2019. So happy tax day, everyone. Uh, uh, interest, nice to be here. Uh, anybody miss the tent? I don't see any hand. Hey, there's somebody. Uh, uh, so uh, t Tom already uh, used up my one joke, which is the title of the uh, of the talk. Uh, you know, blank versus Trump. It seems that everybody's suing uh, uh, the Trump administration uh, these days. Uh, there have been just an, an extraordinary proliferation of cases. Uh, California is in the lead. Uh, Forty-eight lawsuits being prosecuted with our tax dollars uh, uh, against the Trump administration. Other states, like uh, New York and Massachusetts, are having uh, Trump-suing envy. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and it just doesn't, it seems as though a day does not go by without seeing something in the paper about another federal district uh, court uh, issuing an order against yet another uh, Trump administration policy. It might be energy policy. There was one just uh, last week about the decision to open up hundreds of thousands of, uh, of uh, square miles in the uh, Arctic and the North Atlantic to energy development. That was put on uh, uh, on hold. So, uh, you know, energy policy. Uh, how about the census? Did you know that federal courts now have the right to decide what questions are going to be asked on the uh, on the census form? Uh, there's um, uh, uh, there are cases about religious accommodations for uh, against the contraceptive mandate of uh, of Obamacare. Now that may not be surprising to you because religious conscientious objectors do freak, I mean they sue on behalf of their, uh, their conscience to protect their free exercise rights all the time. This is actually one of my specialties in the law. These suits, however, are a little unusual because California filed suit to prevent them from having a religious accommodation uh, uh, under this uh, mandate of uh, Obamacare. How? California has any interest in this litigation is really, I think, something of a mystery. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, that uh, in a moment. Um, but largest number of cases having to do with immigration, since immigration has been such a focus of attention uh, in this administration. Now, I'm not going to talk about the merits of any of this. I'm not in, I'm not in the policy business. Uh, for all I know, the administration's policies, some of them are probably good, some of them probably aren't good. Uh, uh, we could talk all day about that, and I just have to, see, you know, I'm just an ordinary citizen. I don't really have anything to say about that. I want to talk about the law, because what really is extraordinary is the degree to which the federal judiciary has been inserting itself uh, into the policymaking uh, process. Uh, uh, it, it's hard to have numbers because there's, you know, it's hard to know exactly what we're counting, 
But according to the Washington Post a few weeks ago, there have been 63 adverse rulings, that is, orders against various policies of the, uh, of the Trump uh, administration. Now, in a sense, this is nothing new. Every administration has a certain number of setbacks uh, in court. When I was a junior lawyer in the Reagan administration, I'll tell you, we had a few setbacks, and it was very uh, frustrating. Uh, Texas filed 48 suits against the Obama administration. Of course, that was over eight years. California has done 48 and, and just two. Um, the, um, and, and administrations often lose cases. Uh, 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 in fact, since uh, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, every administration has lost, if you look just at cases in the US Supreme Court, every administration has lost a higher percentage uh, than the one before. Uh, back in the days, back in the uh, 1970s and 1980s, uh, the administrations tended to win about 65% of the, their cases, 70%, I think it was in the case of Reagan, uh, uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court. And it's, uh, uh, each one has gone down. O o Obama has the worst record. Uh, we'll see whether Trump is able to beat this record, but uh, uh, you know, Obama was is down about 45% uh, success rate. There was one term of court toward the end of the Obama administration in which there were 10 cases in the Supreme Court in which the administration did not even get a single vote, uh, which means that even the justices appointed to the Supreme Court by Mr. Obama himself and by his Democratic predecessors, even they could not uh, find legal basis for, uh, uh, for supporting the uh, administration's move. So in a sense, there's nothing new, but the sheer volume and breadth and magnitude of the uh, judicial interventions now uh, is a little different. And this phenomenon that states are now taking upon themselves to sue not just about things that affect the state government in some direct way, that's always been true, uh, but about just generalized policy, like California doesn't like creating religious accommodations for objectors in, uh, uh, in Obamacare. What is California, you know, why is California doing that? Um, they're spending millions of dollars, uh, probably over $10 million so far uh, on, uh, on these lawsuits, and they are, you know, from, from the point of view of a t California taxpayer and former judge here, you know, it really strikes me that they are acting like a political advocacy group rather than like a state government that supposedly is uh, representing uh, all of us. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of these suits are succeeding, and, no, you know, nothing succeeds like success. Uh, and I want to talk a little bit about why that is. Um, the, uh, uh, the press and detractors of, uh, of the uh, Trump administration, you know, but I repeat myself, um, uh, have been, greet each of these setbacks with great glee. Uh, uh, I'll quote Fred Barbash from the Washington Post, Quote, in case after case, 
uh, judges have rebuked Trump officials for failing to follow the most basic rules of governance, for shifting policy. Shifting policy, when, hmm, when did it become a basic rule of governance that a new president can't shift policy? I, personally, that's why I thought we elected new presidents, was precisely to shift policy, but I'm just quoting Fred Barbash, uh, he knows, you know, providing, uh, including providing legitimate explanations supported by facts and where required uh, uh, public uh, input. And so, you know, uh, in, in many quarters in America, this, this, uh, these orders are viewed not just, uh, you know, as a series of orders in particular cases, but as uh, evidence of unprecedented lawlessness uh, at at worst and sloppiness at best in the administration. And, you know, I have to admit that there is some truth to that, especially the sloppiness, uh, that the administration has been sloppy. They've been overly hasty in some of these orders. Uh, they have not taken the time that might have been helpful in building a more of a record to support what they have done. Uh, the lawyers have been, uh, uh, the, 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 there are so many cases that the chief lawyers in the administration are just, you know, they're, they're flying around from place to place. They can barely, they barely know where they are. In the uh, uh, travel ban case, which is the first big case to sort of erupt into uh, public attention, uh, the uh, uh, acting solicitor general had to recuse at the last minute, and the lawyer who argued the case for the uh, uh, administration had less than 12 hours to prepare for this important constitutional argument, and he lost in court you know, out here on the West Coast, and it then took a year and a half before the, it could get all the way up to the United States Supreme Court, which then reversed and upheld uh, the basics of the, uh, the uh, so-called travel ban. Um, one reason why so many of these, so there is sloppiness, I don't, uh, and I don't want to uh, uh, deny that, but one reason why uh, so many cases come out this way is that plaintiffs are able to choose where they sue. Uh, this is called, for lawyers, we call this forum shopping. And, you know, however much we might like to think that all judges are just judges, as Chief Justice Roberts assured us, they all wear the same black robes. Uh, in reality, there are different differences in disposition and there are judges to be found on, you know, one and the other, both tales of the distribution, who are very inclined to decide uh, cases with a bit of a political edge to them. And the plaintiffs know who they are. Let me say this is not just Democratic plaintiffs. Republican plaintiffs knew who they were in the last administration. It is no accident that Texas won so many cases in front of one particular federal district judge. Uh, uh, but um, uh, there are a number of, uh, and so plaintiffs can go around and they can pick their forums and try to find places, both where they li are likely to have a favorable district judge, but also where they're likely to have a favorable court of appeals. And that's not difficult to do when you're California because 
the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has more than two, even here two some odd years into the Trump administration still has well more than two thirds of the judges are uh, Democratic appointees and many of them on uh, on uh, of rather shall we say you know uh, rambunctious judicial philosophies. Um, so it takes the cases have to get up sometimes to the top in the system before uh, they may encounter judges with a somewhat more skeptical uh, uh, point of view. Um, the, so that's one reason in addition. Uh, the, um, but I want to talk more about the, uh, some legal changes or some legal issues that cut across these, and then I want to give several examples of particular cases and then uh, uh, close up and, uh, and entertain questions. But you know, there are a number of rather novel legal theories that have been rehearsed, and you know, there's nothing wrong with a novel legal theory, but usually they don't get, in, in law, we don't, novel or new is not a, you know, it's not a word of praise. You know, we like long-standing precedent. Uh, if it can go back all the way to Magna Carta, you know, that's very satisfying. So, uh, but there's some uh, new theories uh, that have been getting surprising traction. Uh, and uh, I'll just mention a few of them. One has to do with the, this doctrine of standing. Now, that's a bit of legal jargon. But it means we don't, in our system, we don't allow just anybody to sue. You have to be the injured party for you to sue. It can't be just that you disagree with what the government is doing. You have to be personally injured by what the government is doing. And that's just as true of states like California as, a, as it is of individuals. Uh, but exactly what an injury is, is, um, you know, there are shades of gray. And so in the travel ban cases, uh, the state of Hawaii was able to get standing on the claim that maybe one of these refugees in Syria or whatever who was not being allowed to uh, get into the country uh, might become a student at the University of Hawaii. And so Hawaii as a state is injured by not allowing these unknown people uh, to, uh, uh, to enter the, uh, the, the country. So standing, a lot, and, and, and sometimes uh, the states, uh, the, sometimes judges go ahead and say that the states don't have standing, but there sometimes is an individual who's also in the case. And so what will happen here is that the judge will say, well, who knows whether the states themselves have standing, but Joe Blow. Uh, you know, this individual is a party. They have standing, so it really doesn't matter whether the state also has standing. Uh, but the practical effect of this is that the state then is left in the case and is paying all the legal bills. And so a party that, who has nothing to do with the case but is able to tax its citizens uh, is, uh, is paying all the bills, hiring the lawyers, bringing in the... Uh, doing discovery and so forth. And uh, this is a new thing under the sun. It did get started under Obama, but it has really accelerated uh, now. And uh, uh, another thing that is quite new is the phenomenon of what are called nationwide injunctions. Uh, this means that a single district court 
a single district judge, and, and, and remember around the country there are uh, what, you know, 690 some odd um, judges, and a few of them are quite odd. Um, uh, any one of them uh, can conclude that the administration action is unlawful or unconstitutional and can stop it nationwide. That's the idea of a nationwide injunction. And they often do this on the basis of what's called a preliminary injunction, which means there hasn't even been a full trial, a full uh, uh, conclusion on the merits of the case. There may have been uh, a filing of a complaint, a several hour hearing, you know, a, few, a few arguments. It might, the case may be decided over a weekend this was true of the case having to do with the uh, Alaskan and North, North Atlantic uh, uh, drilling uh, leases, for example. And a policy that may have been under development in the administration for months and has sign-off from you know, the President of the United States and the relevant secretaries and you know, all the people that we elect to run our country uh, they can have been working on this for months and decided a policy, and one district judge is able to put it on ice. Now, that's not forever, but for a very long time, because it then has to get up to the Court of Appeals, and then there are going to be briefs, and there are going to be arguments there. And if you're in the Ninth Circuit, you've got a reasonable shot that it may be uh, upheld. Uh, no, even if the merits of the case are not very strong, uh, and then you have to go all the way to the Supreme Court. So our uh, Solicitor General now in this administration is, has been filing an extraordinary number of requests with the U.S. Supreme Court to get involved in an earlier stage, like to, to stay the decision, the stay being another one of our lawyer words, meaning, meaning not put that decision into effect, which allows the policy then uh, to continue, or maybe to a leapfrog the Court of Appeals and go directly to the Supreme Court or do something else so that a lone district judge decision doesn't just govern us for all the time it might uh, take. And so, you know, the Supreme Court grants those and it denies those, but, you know, that it's, not a, it's not a deep well. And so the administration has to be careful and only ask for ones uh, in the most uh, serious cases. And one more detail about this is um, plaintiffs might go to 20 judges and each of them say no, and that's fine. They can still go to the 21st, and if they find one judge who agrees with them, that's, that's all they need. So it's really a, it's an, it's an asymmetric uh, litigation system that uh, helps produce these um, uh, the spate of, uh, of cases. And then a third, this is really, it may sound like a technical lawyer's point, uh, but I hope you'll appreciate it, that, uh, that there, are, there are a number of different kinds of decision by the government, but uh, one kind is an official regulation laid down by one of the agencies of government, like you know, the Department of Transportation or the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, and they have public hearings and a whole process, and it's all governed by something called the Administrative Procedures Act, 
uh, and Congress has passed this statute and the Administrative Procedures Act gives courts the authority to sort of second guess the agencies. That isn't, to, it isn't really to substitute, there's supposed to be a lot of deference, but to make sure that the agency had substantial basis for what it's doing, both in evidence and logic. And, um, and Congress has done that, and I mean, that was, the, that was the decision, and so, you know, I have no, certainly have no quarrel with judges exercising that kind of authority. That's what they've been given under the law, and a lot of cases fall under that category. Now, if you don't like a policy, you're a judge and you don't like a policy, uh, you may find that the evidence is a little too thin or the logic isn't really there. So there's a lot of potential for politicization uh, in this, but nonetheless, that's the law that Congress has given us and every administration since the 1940s has lived under that uh, regime. But a lot of the policies that have been challenged of late are actually policies where the president himself is delegated the authority. It's not a decision of the Department of Transportation. It's actually a decision to be made by the president. Take, for example, the travel ban. The statute that Congress passed gives the president the authority, and it says, by proclamation, which is an old-fashioned word, it's basically synonym with executive orders, except that proclamations are what the kings used to do back in the old system. The president, but it, it emphasizes just how discretionary this is. By proclamation may exclude any class of aliens that he believes the entry would be contrary to the public interest. That is essentially the statute in the travel ban. It's not entrusted to some agency, it's not, and, and the president is not an quote, agency for purposes of the Administrative Procedure Act. So courts have not been given the authority to ask, is there enough evidence for this? Do we think your logic is good enough? For decisions that are made by proclamation by the president himself, um, there should be no second guessing on the basis of evidence or, or, or logic. The only uh, uh, permissible challenges are constitutional challenges and not administrative law challenges. And I think many of the uh, courts around the country have been treating Donald Trump uh, as if he were an administrative agency subject to second guessing when he really uh, uh, is not. Uh, another phenomenon that we've been seeing uh, in a number of these cases is this idea that uh, many decisions made by the executive branch are one-way ratchets. That is, a when the president or the administration has discretion to make a policy, but once one president makes the policy, that somehow the next president can't withdraw from that policy without having to jump through a lot of hoops. I think that this is not, uh, not an accurate reading of the law. I think that if the, if Congress or the Constitution vests in the president the discretion to decide something one way or the other, that if President Obama decides it one way, fine, he was elected, but that means that President Trump can decide it the other way, he was elected as well. And yet there are a number of these, there are a half dozen or more of these recent decisions that uh, uh, rely on the logic uh, 
that if it is logic, they, they basically hold that since the policy was already in place, that either the new administration is acting unlawfully and reversing it, or that they needed to come up with much more persuasive uh, uh, reasons for this. Let me give us one example here. The, uh, uh, the litigation over the so-called uh, DACA and DAPA programs, these are the immigration decisions where large millions of people are, who are uh, uh, not documented or here in this country unlawfully have been allowed to remain given lawful status, presented little laminated cards with their picture on them, entitling them to, to work, uh, to get social security benefits, the whole nine yards. This was an Obama program. Uh, and the Obama administration defended these programs on the ground that all they were really doing was exercising prosecutorial discretion. That, you know, there's so many violations of the immigration laws, we can't possibly deal with all of them. And all that the Obama administration was doing was to uh, prioritize and only go after the most serious ones. And these are not the most serious, these are the more attractive cases for remaining. And so it's just prosecutorial discretion, and thus not subject to judicial review at all. Now, that may have been wrong, and in fact, District Court in Texas found that it was wrong. That was affirmed by the Court of Appeals and then affirmed by the Supreme Court, that is, that it was unlawful by a four to four vote right after Justice Scalia uh, passed away, a four to four vote, which has no precedential value. But that's what happened, and now President Trump has simply revoked those orders. Now, and the, um, Several district courts have held that he couldn't do that, that that is unlawful, that he has to keep those orders in place. And the reason is that uh, in revoking them, uh, the administration said that the orders were unlawful. And these courts say, well, we don't think they were unlawful. We think President Obama could do them, and therefore this is a bad reason for uh, revoking them. But if you think about that for just a moment, the illogicality, I think, leaps out. You know, either Obama's orders were lawful or they weren't. I don't know. Either they were lawful or they weren't. If they weren't lawful, well, surely Trump can reverse them. He can always reverse an unlawful order. But if they were lawful, the only ground offered was prosecutorial discretion, which now Trump has the same prosecutorial discretion that Obama did, and so he can choose to exercise prosecutorial discretion by going the opposite way. I don't see how, it seems to me, either way you argue the case uh, that it just cannot be uh, that President Obama has the discretion to do one thing and then Obama and then his successor, for some reason, doesn't have discretion to do uh, uh, the opposite. And then the last of the sort of overarched, sort of cross-cutting uh, issues that I wanted to uh, bring to your attention uh, is, the, uh, is the issue of, of attacks on motivation or the, you know, the subjective re real reasons why the administration uh, has acted. So, for example, in the census question case, uh, the uh, Department of Commerce is given complete discretion to decide what uh, uh, what questions will be on the census, and they've added a question, what, they've reinstated a question, namely, are you a, are, are you a United States citizen, 
uh, to the census form. I was actually shocked to find out it wasn't, hadn't been on the census form all along. Most countries ask this, and it was on the form from 1820 uh, all the way until 1950, and it's been on the long form since then. Um, but uh, the court found that reinstating this question, are you a United States citizen, uh, uh, the, the Commerce Department gave several reasons, mainly having to do with uh, enforcing voting rights laws in which you need to know how many people are citizens in order to know how many people in a district are eligible to vote in order to be able to tell whether uh, there has been uh, unlawful exclusion or unlawful suppression of minority voters. Uh, but the uh, several district courts have looked into Secretary uh, Wilbur Ross's soul and have said that that isn't his real reason. You know, he, his real reason is nefarious and political. Uh, and so because we know what his real reason is, uh, we're going to hold his order uh, unlawful, even though he has complete discretion to decide what questions are to be on the, uh, on the census form. And so, um, and they've actually sought discovery that, uh, and they want to bring Wilbur Ross into the courtroom and cross-examine him on what his real reasons were for adding this, reinstating this question about citizenship on the form. Well, that's already gone up to the US Supreme Court real fast, and the court said, no, 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 you can't, you have no authority to, uh, to bring the Secretary of Commerce in and ask him about his uh, uh, personal motivations. But it cuts across, it goes beyond that mere case because there is this idea afloat in the land and among many of our district court judges that the subjective motivations of, dis of governmental decision makers uh, can result in making a, uh, an otherwise perfectly lawful policy unlawful. This was the travel ban issue. If you remember, um, actually out in the uh, Ninth Circuit here, the plaintiffs actually admitted that if Hillary Clinton had issued exactly the same travel ban, it would be okay. The reason why the travel ban was thought to be unconstitutional was because on the campaign trail, candidate Trump had said various things about a Muslim ban and has otherwise uh, you know, run his mouth or his tweet or you know, whatever it was, whatever it is he runs uh, and, and says things. Uh, and, and because he says these things that we can then read unconstitutional motivations into the formal acts of the administration. This, I think, is a new thing, a new argument under the sun, but a number of the cases have been based upon this to say, well, uh, the stated reasons may be just fine, but we don't, uh, we don't believe the, uh, the, the stated reasons. And so the effect has been to uh, uh, liberate uh, district judges to second-guess many administration actions because uh, you, you can, can you name, I mean, one of the features of this president is that he does comment off the cuff in a very unlawyerly and uncareful and sometimes unpleasant and sometimes even bigoted way about various policies. And uh, if you treat this kind of evidence, if it were evidence, 
of the real motivations behind doing things, there are very few uh, actions of the uh, administration that you can't say must be uh, tainted by uh, the real motivations of, uh, of the president and hence uh, so many decisions. But as they go up from the district judges to the courts of appeals, many of them are reversed and as they get up to the Supreme Court, many more of them have, rever have been uh, reversed. Uh, just last Friday, that Alaska drilling case that I mentioned uh, was uh, t at least temporarily reversed by the Ninth Circuit, by the way, by a three-judge panel with uh, two Democratic appointees and one uh, Reagan appointee uh, on, the, uh, on the panel. That was reversed. The uh, Wilbur Ross order was reversed. The transgender, the, an order uh, uh, putting, not allowing the military to enforce its, its transge transgender policy uh, was stayed by the Supreme Court. Uh, so as the cases get higher in the system, many of them are going to be uh, reversed, but not all, because there is merit to some of these challenges and not to others. And uh, one of the things that bothers me as a uh, lawyer and law professor is the tendency of the press and other commentators just to lump them all together. It's all, it's all blank versus Trump, uh, and if you like Trump, uh, he should win them all, and if you don't like Trump, he should lose them all, and we uh, lose sight of the actual legal arguments in each uh, uh, particular one. So with that, I think we have some time for questions. <laughs> For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Podbean, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.